please take your Bibles and turn with me now to the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 3. We're starting a new message series this morning. This fall, we're going to be working our way through the book of 1 Thessalonians. And our series is called Lessons from a Growing Church. And uh, the book of 1 Thessalonians is actually a letter. It's a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. And what's really impressive about the Thessalonians is that they are a brand new church. When Paul is writing to them, they're just getting started. And yeah, they've got some things wrong with them, just like any church does. But you know what? Overall, they are doing things right. And there is so much that we can learn from this new and growing church. 1 Thessalonians is one of Paul's earliest letters. It's one of the uh, first books that was written in the New Testament. It's also one of Paul's most personal letters. Uh, Paul had an extraordinary ministry among the Thessalonians. He loved them dearly. He longed to see them again, but his continuing missionary work made that impossible. Timothy had just brought him a good report about the church, and so Paul says, I'm going to write them a letter, and that's where 1 Thessalonians comes from. He writes this letter to encourage them, to affirm them of his love, and then to instruct them in several key matters. This is a church that was less than a year old, It was composed entirely of new believers. Everyone was a new believer. Uh, Some recently converted from Judaism, others from paganism. And it's a church that was experiencing persecution. And yet in the midst of all of that, they were growing by leaps and bounds. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to look at the birth of this amazing church, uh, as well as the centrality of the gospel in the life of the church. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Verses 1 through 3, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of God. Let us pray. Well, dear Lord, as we uh, begin this uh, magnificent letter this morning, and as we begin to learn from the Thessalonians, Lord, I pray that you would help us to just catch the fire and the enthusiasm uh, of this newly planted church. And Lord, even though we've been around for a long time, Lord, sometimes we need to recatch that ourselves. So Lord, help us to, uh, to learn Uh, from the Thessalonian church this morning. Teach us by your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Every birth is a miracle, isn't it? Whether the birth of a child, the birth of a puppy, or the birth of a church. I was present at the births of all three of my boys, and those are three of the most memorable days of my life. Spiritual birth is also a miracle. One of the most thrilling experiences in life is when you are there, when you're present, when someone comes to know Jesus, when they trust Jesus for the first time. And right then and there, you're watching as a person crosses over from death to life, from darkness to light, from condemnation to forgiveness, and they receive the free gift of eternal life. It's one of the most incredible experiences ever. 
But you know, another wonder that we don't get to see as often is the birth of a church. We sometimes forget that churches don't just pop out of thin air. and They haven't always been there either. You know, and just uh, like a child that is born, a church needs to be planted, nurtured, birthed, and established. And that's exactly what happened with the church at Thessalonica. When Paul wrote this letter to the Thessalonians, it was about the year 50 A.D. And you know what? He could never have written this letter the year before. You know why he couldn't have written it a year before? No church, nobody to write to. It didn't exist yet. Uh, This was a brand new church. It had just been birthed into the world a few months before Paul writes this letter. So first there wasn't a church, and then there was a church. And you go, well, how does that happen, right? Money doesn't grow on trees, and neither do churches. Where do they come from? And so this morning, we're going to look at the birth of the Thessalonian church together. And as we look at the birth of this new church, I, I want you to see how absolutely essential the gospel is to the church. There's an outline in your worship guide. I'd encourage you to take that out to follow along, but you'll see the three points we're going to look at this morning are, first of all, the gospel creates the church. Secondly, the gospel sustains the church. And then thirdly, the gospel defines the church, defines the church's identity and mission. The church does not exist apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is absolutely central to the life of the church. So let's get started. First of all, the gospel creates the church. Now, to to learn about the birth of the Thessalonian church, you actually don't go to Thessalonians. You go to a different book of the Bible. You go to the book of Acts. And we read about the birth of the church in Acts 17. The year was A.D. 49. Thessalonica, this was a bustling port city. It was located along a major trade route uh, called the Ignatian Way. This was a city with a rich history. It was founded in the year 315 B.C. by an officer named Cassander. Uh, It was in a prime location, had a natural harbor, well-suited for a major city. Cassander named it after his wife. And her name just happened to be Thessalonica. Good guess, though. Thessalonica, named it after his wife. And and she was the half-sister of Alexander the Great. So you can start seeing the connections here. Cassandra was a general in Alexander's army. And so Thessalonica, named after Cassandra's sister, Thessalonica, so became really uh, a huge city. Uh, Later became the capital of the entire uh, Roman province of Macedonia. Even today, in modern times, it is considered the second most important city in all of Greece. So now where does Paul come come into all this? Well, Paul had just begun the first part of what we call his second missionary journey. And his traveling companions for this journey were Silas, Timothy, and Luke, uh, although we only read about Paul and Silas being at Thessalonica. They just came from Philippi. Remember the letter to the Philippians? They just came from Philippi, where they had successfully planted the first church in all of Europe was in Philippi. They just planted the first church. In fact, this missionary journey of Paul's marks the first time the gospel was ever preached or shared in all of Europe. And now they came from Philippi to Thessalonica, about 100 miles, five-day journey on foot. You don't have trains or buses in those days. And and, uh, they would have traveled along the Ignatian Way, this trade route. And what happens when they get there? Paul does what he always does. Paul preaches the gospel 
to the Thessalonians. Let's pick up the story now in the book of Acts, chapter 17, verse 1. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. And once again, this is a major city. It's full of politics and people and religion and trade. And uh, there were plenty of pagans there, pagan temples and idols. But there was also a strong Jewish presence because of the synagogue. But you know what? There wasn't there yet. They had pagans, they had Jews. You know what they didn't have? No Christians. And why didn't they have any Christians? No church. No gospel. No Christians yet. But that is all about to change. Now, Paul and Silas, they're just ordinary men. I bet you nobody even noticed them as they walked into the city that day. But they carried with them a message so powerful that within weeks it would rock the whole city, even as it continues to rock our world today. And that message was the gospel. The gospel, and it is absolutely essential to the birth of a church. Look at verses 2 and 3 with me now. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus that I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Now notice Paul's approach here. He began in the synagogue. And when you read through the book of Acts, you see this is Paul's usual practice when he went into a city. Paul was a trained Pharisee. He had a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures. And so for three weeks on three successive Sabbaths, he goes into the synagogue and demonstrated from the Hebrew Scriptures, from the Old Testament, how the Messiah had to suffer and then rise from the dead. And I'm sure he pointed to them to passages such as Isaiah 53 and Psalm 16 and Psalm 22 and others. And here was his strategy. It was masterful. First, first thing he does is he says, here, let's look at your scriptures. And he shows them, let's see what it says about Messiah. And he showed them from their own scriptures how the Messiah would die and then rise from the dead. And once they see that, okay, wow, we didn't know that the Messiah was going to die and rise from the dead. Then he moves on to part two of his strategy. He goes, oh, by the way, let me tell you what happened in Jerusalem recently. This man named Jesus came along uh, proclaiming, you know, claiming to be the Messiah. And he died, and three days later, he rose from the dead. So first he shows them from the Scriptures, the Messiah is going to die, rise from the dead. Then he tells them that Jesus did that, and then he connects the dots for them. He says, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Messiah. He is the Christ who is foretold in the Scriptures. Basically, what did Paul do? He shared the gospel, because that's how you do it. That's how you plant a church. Paul would later write to the Church of the Romans. He would write this, Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentiles. That's what Paul did. Goes to the synagogue first. Preaches to the Jews first because this is their Messiah. And he told them, this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. Then we uh, get to the people's response to the gospel in verse 4. Uh, we read, some of the Jews were persuaded. They joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks, and not a few prominent women. So we've got a number of people joining the church now. First, you've got some of the Jews responding. As Paul opened up the scriptures, and, and they saw that, that Christ was in there, they received Jesus as their Messiah, as their Lord and Savior. 
Then you've got this, these God-fearing Greeks. Who are they? Well, these were Gentiles who attended the synagogue, but they did not really want to become Jews. But they believed in, in the one true God. Uh, and the gospel was great news for them because at last they found out we can worship the one true God and we don't have to go through all of the, the, the trappings of Judaism. Uh, we can worship God as Gentiles without first becoming Jews. And so that was wonderful news for them. And, uh, and then he also says a number of prominent women from the city also embraced Christ. And Paul mentions them. Now, Acts doesn't state it directly for Thessalonica, but we can assume that also during the week on Nodded Sabbath, Paul went into the marketplaces and he went to the pagan Gentiles in the city and preached the gospel to them. For example, we see he did this in Athens, Acts 17, verse 17. It says, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, that's what he always did first, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. This was Paul's pattern. This is how he did evangelism. He'd go to the, uh, the synagogue first. Jesus is the Messiah for the Jews. Uh, but Jesus is also a savior for everyone. So he goes to the marketplace, shares the gospel with the Gentiles as well. This was, in fact, Paul's main commission in life. He was commissioned as an apostle to the Gentiles, right? Peter was the apostle to the Jews. Paul, apostle to the Gentiles. When Christ first confronted Paul on the road to Damascus, remember, struck him blind, and God sent Ananias to him. God told Ananias this, this man, Paul, is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. And as, as we go through this letter to the Thessalonians, you're going to see it. It becomes very clear. Many of these new believers, they came from pagan backgrounds. They'd been worshiping idols. And these also came to Christ through the gospel. And so the church at Thessalonica was birthed. You had some Jews. You had some God-fearing Greeks. You had some prominent women. You had some Gentiles from pagan backgrounds. You go, well, that's a really strange mixture. How did they all get along, right? But that's what the church is all about, isn't it? Jews, Gentiles, pagans, Greeks, men, women, slave and free, all brought together, uh, worshiping together, all one body of Christ all brought together by the power of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. The gospel creates the church. That's our first point. The gospel creates the church. Not only does the gospel create the church, next we see that the gospel also sustains the church. The gospel sustains the church. Yes, the gospel brings life, but you know what? It also sparks opposition. And it was the gospel that sustained the church at Thessalonica. They were only several weeks old as a church. Can you imagine if we were just a couple weeks old, if we just started a couple weeks ago, when the persecution from the community began with a vengeance. Uh, We don't have time to read all the verses today, but you can read all about it later. Uh, You you just continue in Acts 17, verses 5 through 9. Let me summarize it for you. The Jews who had not believed, they did not like this new assembly of believers in their city. So they started stirring up trouble, and they started a riot in the city, and they dragged some of the new believers in front of the city officials. They accused them. They said, they're causing trouble all over the world. They're defying the laws of Caesar. And then the crowd and and the, and the, the city officials were all thrown into turmoil, and the stage was set for the ongoing persecution of this tiny, brand new, little growing church in Thessalonica. Those who'd been arrested were forced to post bond before they were released. Paul and Silas just barely escaped from the city during the night. 
And so when Paul writes this letter to the Thessalonians, the church is still experiencing persecution. This is a young church, okay? These are new believers. And you've got to ask the question, how did they do it? How did they keep going in the face of such opposition? How do Christians do it today? How do churches and Christians today keep their faith in the midst of persecution? How will you do it? How will you persevere when persecution comes your way? And the answer is this, the same gospel that creates the church also sustains the church. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. He's alive. We do not serve a dead founder of a false religion. We serve the living Christ who daily strengthens us and gives us hope. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's what sustains the church in the midst of persecution. Christ is with us, and if Christ is with us, who can be against us? Jesus told his disciples, he said, in this world you will have trouble. Boy, was he ever right on that one, right? He said, but take heart. I have overcome the world. We read in Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, these words about the Lord. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? And so the gospel gives us hope in the midst of trouble. Christ is risen. Christ is with us. Christ is coming again. And so we have the hope of Christ's return and eternal life in God's presence where there is fullness of joy. As we continue to work our way through the letter of Thessalonians in the coming weeks, you're going to see that one of the major themes in this letter is hope. Hope just keeps popping up again and again. And how appropriate. Because this is a church that was facing opposition. And so Paul reminds them of the hope that is held out for them in the gospel, the hope that is found in Christ. So the gospel creates the church. The gospel sustains the church. And then thirdly, the gospel also defines the church. The gospel defines the church's identity and mission. Let's take a look at those two now. First, the gospel defines the church's identity. Okay, we're going to get to Thessalonians now. I know we've been in Acts, but we wanted to see the birth of the church. So back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, where we read Paul's greeting. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. I want you to notice, first of all, how Paul addresses them. He doesn't simply address them as the church or the church in Thessalonica, but he says the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's speaking here of their identity. Their identity as a church rests completely in God the Father and Jesus the Son. And why is that? Apart from God the Father sending Jesus the Son, there would be no church, right? There would be no church. God sent his son into the world to die for sin. And now the Thessalonians have been called out of the world to live in and for Christ. They have been set apart as a church by the gospel of Christ. The gospel defines the church's identity. Notice also how Paul speaks of God and Jesus together, really in one breath, right? They are identified together. They are put on equal 
terms. And this shows us something very important. Even in the earliest letters of the New Testament, remember 1 Thessalonians is one of the earliest, that early on the apostles give ample testimony to the deity of Christ. Notice the titles that Paul ascribes to Jesus. He says he's Lord. That means he's God. Uh, His human name is Jesus. That means Savior. He's the Christ. That means he is the Messiah. And so Paul says, the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the Messiah of God. He is the infinite God-man who was sent by the Father to accomplish salvation for the world. The church exists in Jesus and in God. Once again, the gospel defines the church's identity. So Paul, you know, in his greeting, he not only identifies the recipients of his letter, you're supposed to do that at the beginning of your letter, but he also gets in some teaching as well. Sneaky guy, huh? He would have made a good pastor. So he gets in some teaching. And then he goes on to greet them in a, in a typical Pauline fashion. He says, grace and peace to you. Grace, that's the very heart of the gospel. God's grace to us in Christ. Peace, that's what you receive in the gospel. Peace with God, peace with others. One day all of creation will be reconciled, whether things on earth or things in heaven, all by making peace through Christ's blood shed on the cross. The gospel defines the church's identity And then the gospel also defines the church's mission. What are we supposed to be doing as a church? What's our mission? Look at verses 2 and 3 with me now. Paul writes, We always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Paul, as he often does, he immediately launches into thanksgiving for the Thessalonians. And he tells them there are three things in particular. That when he's thanking God for them and remembering them before God in prayer, three things in particular that he remembers. He says, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, your endurance inspired by hope. These three things together describe the church's mission. And all three relate directly to the gospel. Let's look at all three of them now in closing. First, Paul says, I remember your work produced by faith, literally your work of faith. You're saved by faith, right? That's how you're saved. But salvation results in good works in your life. That's always the pattern in Scripture. For example, Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. There's your salvation. It's not from yourselves. It's it's the gift of God. It's not by works so that no one can boast. But then it goes on and says in verse 10, for we are God's workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So you might wonder, well, what was the good work that the Thessalonians were doing? They were spreading the gospel. They were fulfilling the Great Commission. The church was doing a good work, but Paul reminds them it is a good work that is based on faith. Remember, the gospel defines the church's mission. The church's mission is to spread the gospel. It is a work produced by faith. Next, Paul says, I remember your labor prompted by love, literally your labor of love. And the word labor here emphasizes the cost of the work to the worker. Yes, they have a work uh, that is uh, produced by faith, but there's a cost to that work that they're doing. That word labor, it's a word uh, that means pain, toil, hardship, sweat, exhaustion. 
sacrifice. Remember what Jesus commanded us as his disciples? He said, love one another as I have loved you. Well, how did Jesus love us? All the way to the cross, right? He gave up everything. He labored to the point of exhaustion. He laid down his life for his friends. And that's how we are to love each other. Just as our work must be produced by faith, so also our labor and sacrifice must be prompted by love. Because without love, it's meaningless. Remember what Paul wrote, 1 Corinthians 13, if I give all I possess to the poor, if I surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is what drives the Christian to labor and sacrifice for others. And so Paul writes of your labor prompted by love. And then finally, Paul says, I remember your endurance inspired by hope. Literally, your endurance of hope. That goes back to the the second part of our message this morning, right? That the gospel sustains the church in times of difficulty. Yes, there's going to be times of trial and hardship. Persecution may come. But the gospel still holds forth hope. And when the Bible speaks of hope, this is not what we might call a wishful thinking kind of hope, like, gee, I sure hope so, right? No, this is the absolute certainty that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him, that no trial is ever wasted in the life of the believer, and that Christ is returning for his church, that every Christian has a bright hope and a future that will never be taken away. Titus 2.13 tells us how we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the kind of hope that inspires endurance when you go through the hard times. Notice it's a hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Your hope is only as good as the one in whom you are hoping. Have you ever hoped in someone unreliable? Yeah, they're going to pick me up, and then they don't. No, that wasn't much of a hope, was it, right? But Christian hope is hope in the person of Christ, and therefore our hope is perfect, it is certain, it is unshakable. The gospel defines the church's mission. Paul says, I remember your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. John Calvin called this one verse a brief definition of true Christianity. And it tells us the church's mission, work, labor, and endurance. Those are the things the church does. Faith, love, and hope, those are the motivations for what the church does. Faith in God leads to good works. Love for others leads to sacrificial service. Hope in Christ leads to faithful endurance on the part of the saints. Faith works, love labors, hope endures. And all three of these relate to the gospel, just from different time perspectives. One commentator puts it this way, faith rests on the past, love works in the present, hope looks to the future. It's the gospel in different uh, past, present, and future tenses. If you want to put it all together in one sentence, here it is. We are saved by faith to serve in love until Christ comes to take us home. Amen? We are saved by faith to serve in love until Christ comes to take us home. The gospel defines the church's identity and mission. So this morning, 
we've been privileged to witness through Scripture the birth of a church. Isn't that awesome? In A.D. 49, no church in Thessalonica. A.D. 50, the church is alive and growing. You know, there was a time when our church here didn't exist either. You come back here in 1947, no church. You come back in 1948, there's a church here. Where did that come from? How does that happen? It's through the gospel. It's through the gospel. Today, by the grace of God, our church is here. And today, by the grace of God, we are firmly rooted in the gospel of Christ. The gospel is central to the church. It creates the church. It sustains the church in times of difficulty. The gospel defines the church's identity and mission. When a church lets go of the gospel, it ceases to be a true church. It loses its roots. It forfeits its power. And it abandons its true identity and mission. So I'm real excited as we start this new letter together to the Thessalonians, this this young, growing church, so much we can learn from them. And just as God had great things in store for the Thessalonians, God has great things in store for us as a church. I'm so excited about all that God is doing here, but remember this, in everything that we do, okay, in all that we do and all that we plan, we must never lose sight of the gospel. The gospel must be central to all that we are, all who we are as a church, all that we do. Amen? Let's pray. Well, dear Lord, we thank you for this letter as we're just getting started, just dipping our toes in the water. And uh, Lord, so many wonderful lessons for us to learn. And, and Lord, I pray that as, a, as we uh, witness this, this new and growing church, that you would just encourage us and inspire us and Lord, there, there may be things that we've just gotten lazy in and, and we've just gotten used to doing. Lord, strike us all over with the, the newness and the freshness of it all. And, and Lord, the beauty of the gospel, Lord, help us to look for, uh, for opportunities to share the gospel with others. Uh, help us uh, to fulfill the mission you've given us as a church. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.